Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. Some say that leadership starts with the self. So how does your individual leadership style change as you evolve as a person? And how can you stay connected and in tune with your personal and professional evolution? There's no one better to give us advice on this than Professor Maya Jikic. She leads the self-development lab at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. She's a psychologist specializing in the field of personality development. Her work also examines the impact of self-change on relationships. Please enjoy Professor Maya Jikic. Okay, I'd love to learn more about your self-development journey. How did you decide where to focus your career? That's a big question. Well, you start with the big guns. So <laughs> I think I got interested in psychology partially because I I come from Bosnia and Herzegovina, and in the 90s, they had a war there. And so I'm not sure whether that's the reason why I suddenly was trying to sort out why people do what they do, but I certainly know that when I started my master's in psychology, my first topic was, why is it that you know, people can suddenly become genocidal and start killing their neighbors. That was kind of how do you sort of how do you go about your life and then one day you suddenly turn around and want to harm somebody, you know, unarmed civilian right next to you. So I think that was the beginning of me trying to understand what happens to adults. You know, the more I learned about it, not just about genocide in Bosnia, but genocides, you know, from historically. I know it is a very interesting pattern of self-deception. So I studied both individual and collective self-deception so that people tend to tell themselves stories about why it is that they attack others. And usually these stories are based or fanned politically by others. They're based in sort of feeling of their own oppression and, and the kind of victimization, which I see all the time, you know, for example, in the current in modern environment when people are trying to resist the movement towards more equality and diversity and inclusion, it will be usually that the reasoning will be somebody's in, they're in danger, somebody's in danger, and they're being oppressed or victimized. It's a very interesting dynamic, I found. That sense of I'm losing something or someone's taking something away from me. When you say you see it happening in adults, is there certain groups that are more vulnerable to it are there certain periods of time where you've seen it spark more rapidly in adults? So this is in my master's. So in my master's study, I studied collective self-deception and I moved more towards an individual one. I found sort of both collectively and individually, the more people are underfulfilled, basically the more, I think the underdeveloped parts of self they have, the easier it is to misguide them into thinking that others could be a threat because they're feeling already underfulfilled and they're trying to find out why that is. And I think when somebody says it's over there, that's the reason why, I don't know, traditional family is under threat or, you know, this new movement is, it's very easy to kind of just say, oh, that's right. Then it's easy to then band with the group of people and 
you know, make the other into the enemy too. And when you say it's easy, is there a sense of relief you think that adults may feel that, oh, it isn't something I'm doing. It's not that I'm losing my sense of purpose. It's this outside force that is the reason for this pain I'm experiencing. Exactly. You put a name, it's other, it's not you, it's somebody else. And now you have something to fight. And oddly enough, it gives you this renewed sense of purpose, which is, of course, not in the direction that will fulfill you. All you know is, here's all these other people that feel exactly like me. And we have somewhere to put our frustration on. And, you know, it's very interesting because it can look like a very legitimate. So when I think about, okay, we do it all the time, like Me Too movement, you have a sense of there has been oppression and finally there's a voice and now we're going to band together and stand up for justice. And it's very interesting how that legitimate movement, how other groups can kind of take the form of it and try to seem to do the same thing, except that they're not going for justice and they're not trying to, it's not going to help you, it's not going to improve the world, it will make it less just, but the format is replicated, whereas the content is drastically, radically different. And what role does the concept of groupthink play in that collective sense of oppression? You know, it's interesting. I mean, groupthink is a sort of very old concept, absolutely. Fundamentally, it's a bunch of individual things <laughs> that are bound in a predictable way, you know, by the narrative, how the direction of the narrative. So the thing about groupthink is that it's predictable. Whereas, you know, when I think about motivational system of, of humans, there is the predictable bit. And I, I think of that as the sort of the animal side, the animals. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just what it is. It's like the little monkey inside of us, little primate. <laughs> and there they are. And what do primates want? They want status. They want resources. They want all of these things. And we think it's that as humans, when we want more real estate and more money and more position, that that's more likes on our Instagram, that it's somehow special when really it's a version of this primary desire to climb and ascend the social hierarchies. And that's one side, motivational side. And in that way, we're all predictable. So if somebody said, you know, Sonia or Elizabeth, somebody's tomorrow, you're going to get a giant promotion or somebody's going to drop $100,000 in your account. Nobody would be like legitimate, clean money. You know? <laughs> Nobody would be complaining. It would, we would say, oh, well, isn't that nice, right? So notice how in that way we're all predictable. When it comes to sort of our human side, our individual potentialities, we're all very, very different. So when I think of the best of humanity, the best of what is possible for human beings, I wouldn't be able to predict it for any of, of you. You would know that far better than I would, and we would be all very different in it. Isn't that a daunting concept for most people to think, oh, I have to go find my own potential? I mean, here I am with all of these seductive tools like social media that tell me how to succeed, that tell me how to be validated and matter in this world. But ultimately, for me to find that purpose and that potential, it's up to me. It is very daunting, which is why most of us just prefer a menu of here's what is <laughs> good to want. Here's your little menu appetizer when you're young, you know, here's the things to be interested in. And then you have the main course of the career and a spouse and then your retirement options right here on the bottom as a dessert. Right. So there's your little menu of acceptable wants. 
And it is very daunting to carve a path. And yet there it is. You can't replicate somebody. You can try, but in the end, it won't be their path. It will be you replicating their path. And so what are some of the tools that you started to identify as critical for that self-discovery journey and that you focused your research on? So it's interesting because given that we're all prone to this self-deception and that manifests as attachment to our identity. So most people think of identity as a kind of good thing. You identify with whatever it is. You can identify with your soccer team. You can identify with your nationality. You identify with the gender. You identify with your... Degrees. Degrees, exactly. Right, profession and so on. And so what I often talk about is this identity. It's like a, it's like a sort of choking. It's like holding you in sort of a pattern that is where you're supposed to move and grow. So it's almost like having... Look, when you see little children growing and they have clothes and then they start growing out of the clothes, it's like growing out of your clothes, but you're really committed to the clothes. It's like, no, I am the VP of this company and I just that. And what I tell people is that even the most positive of identities can be dangerous. And I often even say that it's actually the more positive the identity is, the more dangerous it is. So let's say you have an identity such as like often people say, well, my most important identity is a parent. So I'm a mother or I'm a father and that's who I am, right? And what I try to help them understand is that they actually, that's not what they are. They perform a role of a mother. Hopefully they feed their children and do all the things that are necessary. But then underneath there is a person and that having stickers on you. And at the end of the day, you need to, take off these stickers for 15 minutes and know that there is this thing underneath the stickers that is growing all the time and moving. And so that when we just put one, it's like putting that one coat and just being inside of it, that we're going to start being in pain if we start outgrowing our identities. So in the first 10 minutes of our conversation here, Maya has introduced some really interesting concepts about outgrowing one's identity. She said, we are all prone to self-deception that manifests as our identity. So I wanted to learn more about her research and how we can work past our limiting beliefs to continue to grow as we get older. So when it comes to my research, it was a big fight even to just be able to say that, let's say in print, as in a scientific article, without being quoted out a bunch of studies saying, well, you know, personality is they called it set in plaster model of personality, which is that you become who you are. And by 30, you're set in plaster. Whoa. Just think of that metaphor. You're set in plaster. That's who you are. Good luck. If you talk to psychoanalysts, you know, people who are psychoanalysts, they say, no, actually, it's by the age of like seven that it's kind of done, right? You, everything that's really important about you has already been formed. Seven years old. Yeah, because there's all these dynamics with the parents and now you're going to... So my first big battle, I think, was to even be able to say, no, if we were the same way when we were 30 or, or God forbid, when we were seven, we would be in a lot of trouble. So that development is a long process. And as much as maybe now we take it for granted, when I was starting to publish on this, like in, in two, like um, maybe 2005 or six, you know, you get pushback of the kind where it's like, well, we know that your research shows change. 
but it's impossible because we know that personality setting plaster by 30. So you can't publish this because clearly it goes against everything. And everyone who reviewed you happened to be over the age of 30. So they were very fixed in what they believed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was an interesting. So I think for me, this idea of self-development starts, it's really fundamentally idea focused on adults because it's very obvious how young people develop. And we accept it, we promote it, we encourage it, we put our minds and hearts into their development. And what I'm really interested in is that over 30 group who think that they're kind of done somehow mentally and only think of self-development when they run into a trouble that produces some kind of pain or prevents their progress in their sort of menu of thing that they have chosen. And there's they often in professional setting and they stop and they say, hold on, wait, why is it that, you know, I'm a leader, but they're not listening to me or they, they're not paying attention or I'm a leader and they keep getting upset when I say something. And so to them, it looks like an interpersonal problem mm -hmm. when really it's a self-development problem. And we say an interpersonal problem. It's also one of those relieving moments where you could say, oh, this must be, you know, person ABC. And this must be my dynamic with them, or it must be what they're bringing in this environment, as opposed to that challenging thing, like you're saying, of looking internally. Yeah. It's like, in, you know, like when people are breaking up and they say, it's not you, it's me. Well, it's, this is the opposite. We all start with, it's you, it's not me. And what I would love is that we start realizing, oh, no, actually, it's not you. It really is me. And go from there. And what are some of the skills that you hope to build in adults as you coach self-development and that sort of internal first approach to developing as a leader? So I think the big aha moment that I had once I kind of focused my mind on what is it that I would like to see happen, which is that a grown person who feels kind of stuck in their development can suddenly say, uh-huh, I want to open up, I want to grow. So what would that take? And what occurred to me is that the tools that are often given to adults, whether it's self-help books or podcasts, usually oddly enough focus on just one part of self. So usually it's something like, oh, well, you are not eating well, so let's focus on this behavior and let's get you to do this, right? We forget that basically self is made of five different, at least parts, which is, yes, you have your behavior, but you also have your emotions, your mind, you have the previous patterns of sort of neurological patterns, your past is kind of bearing on you, what you have done in the past. And you have this motivational system that, again, can throw everything into disarray. So now you have these five parts and all of us are only focusing on behavior. So I have people imagine it's like a wheel. And imagine you're pulling one spoke of the wheel one way, whereas the rest of the wheel is pushing the other way. It's inevitable what you're going to produce is self-fragmentation. You're going to break yourself experience it a lot when they try to change their diet or exercise is that they're like they they get up in the morning they're doing this thing they're doing it and then there's more stress in their life here and there and then they're still doing it until they just kind of break and all the bets are off the table and so what I try is to kind of have us put the wheel back together right and so let's look at all of the different part five parts of the cell and figure out what are the tools that are necessary from each five. And thankfully, over ever since the dawn of psychology, ever since 
Freud and other people started talking about unconscious and, and individual change that is not purely just neurological, we've had like all of these really good techniques and but that focus only on one part of the self. So there are these great techniques on how to deal with emotions. There are these great techniques on what to do with your mind, right? With mindfulness and cognitive behavior. So notice how it's all either emotion-based or cognitive behavioral. There's a great work on trauma, which is about the body part. And so what I've endeavored to do is to bring a model together that would pull together whatever are the techniques from all different parts of the self, which I believe we need to move at the same time to produce inner change. And so is the first step for folks realizing that they are an integrated self is just trying to get through for people to understand that the first step? Yeah. It's very interesting that you said that you use the word integrated because, you know, the word integrity comes from integrated. When people don't have integrity, so we talk about integrity and leadership all the time. And usually what people mean by that is that people's words and behaviors are pulling up. So they say one thing, but they do another. But really, lack of integrity is when any part of the self, let's say you say something different than what you think or you feel or you're motivated by, or you do something different than what you feel. You see, there's so many ways in which we can be lack integrity. So we're not whole, basically. Lack of integrity means we're not put together whole. And so when we see a leader who does have integrity, it, it strikes us as extraordinary because it's a very powerful thing to be whole in this way with all different parts of the cell and moving in the same direction. So absolutely. So the first step often is just moving people from the mindset of just behavior and habits. <laughs> I know people love it. I always <laughs> say good habits are better than bad habits, but no habits are better than good habits. Because habits basically imply that you do the same thing all the time, right? When really, like, let's say, obviously, a good breakfast. So, I don't know, let's say fruit and protein. I don't know. It's a good, whatever you would consider a good breakfast is better than I have three donuts in the morning, which I also see in some ways seems <laughs> like a good breakfast. But anyway, yeah. let's say a dietitian says bad breakfast, okay? Do the fruit and eggs. Now, that's good, except that every morning I'm growing older by the day, which means that my nutrition, you know, maybe one morning I want, I need a little bit more of something else. I don't need exactly that same breakfast. And so sensitivity to my needs and to my development would be preferable to the good habit, whereas the good habit obviously is preferable to the bad habit. So the first step is kind of to get people out of this kind of, here's what to do, here's the roadmap. If you stick to it, this is what you're going to look like. This is what you're going to feel like. This is the position you're going to have. And starting to <laughs> initiate them more into what would it look like if you didn't have this roadmap, if you dropped somebody else's menu <laughs> and started carving and writing your own path. And again, this is not to say that dietitians and experts and personal trainers don't have some wonderful ideas, but it's all about taking these this expertise then making a path for yourself. Because it sounds like habits sometimes can exist in a vacuum from the dynamic needs of the growing and evolving person. And so how do you stitch those two things together so that they feel like they're of you and they're true to what you actually need? Does that start with 
self-connection and how do you build that self-connection? Yeah, self-awareness. I think of most of what I do, I think of it as psychoeducation. I know it sounds funny. (laughs) It's psychoeducation, which means that, you know, people come into workshops and they say, you know, they're like, is this where we transform? And I'm like, no, (laughs) transform at home. That's the place to transform. Here, you're going to get some understanding awareness techniques, which again, I'm hoping you will choose very carefully that you will organize into a whole that will work for you. So what I think we really need is to start to get understanding of how the whole self-system works in order to start transforming it. It's, you know, if I take the worst of the metaphors, I take, let's say, a car that has been broken down, right? So let's say I take a super mechanical metaphor. If you don't know anything about the car and you take a car in, you know, the mechanic can tell you anything, literally anything, and you'll be like, oh, okay, it's a carburetor slash, okay. <laughs> And it's a bit, I feel like the same way when we take ourselves to therapists and coaches and psychiatrists, it's like we have no sense of what the system is supposed to be like. And we take ourselves, this very precious thing, and they say, here is it in your hands. And usually it feels good or it doesn't feel good, but we don't know. Like basically all the expertise resides within them. And human beings are one of those things that it can be inside of them. It has to be your expertise has to be inside of you. So in my mind, the more expertise every person gets on how everything works inside of them, then they can be much more informed when they are going out and saying, you know what, I think I'm getting a sense of where I'm falling out of, you know, what is stuck and what I need to get moving. And I need a little bit of support. So therefore I would need this kind of a coach or this kind of a therapist or even meeting, you know, most of the coaches and therapists they are also are trained in just one type of thing. And so I often tell the people in, in my workshops and seminars, you know, by the end of this, you'll know a little bit more than them broadly, right? About the thing that you need. And that's a good, you can go and say, huh, you seem to be focusing a lot of emotion. Do you have in your repertoire, do you do some trauma work or body work or, and that's enormously empowering, I find. And, there's an enormous appetite for this type of self-discovery, but it's interesting the way you talk about it is a lot of our tendency is to look for it outside of ourselves. And how you're talking about it is starting with the self and becoming an expert on what your personal dynamic system needs. And that can be, we use the word daunting at the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about it. This sounds even more so that there are experts in the world and they've researched this and studied this for their whole lives. And I don't study this. And how do I even start understanding what type of mentor I need, what type of coach I need? What are those first steps that you encourage people to go on as they're on this journey? A little bit of psychoeducation, right? A little bit of knowing about everything, right? About the whole self system. And then from there, exploring a little bit. I really tell people it's not as nearly as daunting as you think, because think of the experts. They have spent many, many years in that one narrow thing, right? Like this one narrow, it's like, I don't know, it's like a botanist who's studying this one species of plant, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, that's very difficult to know so much detail about it, but it's not so difficult to get like an overview, okay, of the plant world is here's the, you know, six different, I don't know, whatever these categories are, just broadly, even broad understanding of our underlying 
what is there to to pay attention to? I, I find people suddenly are like, wait a minute, this is not <laughs> this is not you know nuclear physics. This is me. I live with myself all the time. This is a bit easier than I thought it would be. One of your biggest insights about what it means to be human is from your research we quoted, our optimal state is that of continuous growth. Yes. Can you talk a bit more about this insight? I think that after a certain age, people think of themselves as trying to maintain youth because if they don't maintain it, they grow into decrepitude. Literally. <laughs> so there's kind of like you think that there is like a peak. And then after that, I have a colleague who's very sweet. He's in his 80s. And he keeps saying to me, Maya, you're just getting into your peak. And I, I keep saying, to him, You've been saying that for the last 20 years. When is it come? You know, because, but there is this sense he thinks he's on the other side, but he's not because I don't really believe in the bell curve. Why? Because wherever potentially we've developed, it opens a whole new set. So there isn't a curve going down. It is basically this continual set of potentialities. And people say, well, wait a minute. Even, okay, let's take a simplest thing. Physical strength. Isn't it just necessary that you're just going to go down and all you can do is try to maintain your muscle mass and so on? My mentor during my postdoctoral fellowship, psychologist, Ellen Langer. So she's uh, a huge expert on mindfulness. And she studied superagers. And she said, when people age, there's basically two categories. There's people who suddenly have this decrepitude. Suddenly everything, they have less mobility. And then there's something that people are called superagers who actually get stronger. The older they get, they get stronger, they have more muscle mass. And part of it is her interest was these kind of limiting beliefs because you think that's the case. You stop doing exercises that are as demanding. You you stop moving as much. You it, it, it's sort of we internalize these outside narratives. And so you know, putting the physical side because I really am not an expert on it. I think from human growth perspective, even if we are hundred and two, there's things in front of us that we need to learn and grow how to do really well, even if it is to be ill well and to die well. <laughs> People underestimate this. There's all these things in front of us in our path as a human being. And at every stage, there's a set of things that are new that open up that we need to learn how to do well and how to grow through. And if that's illness, then you grow through illness. If that's loss and tragedy, then you grow through. It's deepening and growing, no matter what the circumstances bring you. And when you use that word, well, growing well, growing older well, going through these experiences, who defines well? This is not in relation to the standard. It's in relation to your potentiality. I was listening to... Uh, interview that you had with Mark Kingwell. And very interesting thing that came up was what is the nature of self, right? Because he was talking about singularities. We were talking about what, and there was this idea that what we are fundamentally is a set of memories and experiences and how weird would it be? It's like somebody replaces your memories and that would make you a different person. And you see, fundamentally developmental psychologists, I don't believe that. I believe that, yes, we are Think of our body as the thing that we carry, our past. So that's our memories and that's, but that there is something in us that also pulls us towards something. So, well, to grow well is to grow in the direction of where you're being pulled. And so that 
even if somebody were to replace my memories, I might have passion for psychology, right? And so no matter who this old person it was supposed to be, I would keep getting, or in a, you know, in a bookstore, I would reach for a book on psychology. In a conversation, I would start talking about psychology. It would just, it's like a thing that pulls us. In the same way that when you look at, I don't know, a seed, it has these potentialities to be something. We have this in us in a very unique way. So I think when we fully grow in the direction that we need to be, and it looks so, and that's very important to understand, it looks so different for everybody. So I, you know, when I'm 70, I might be fully mobile and riddled with disease. And that there is this inner growth that I am kind of being pulled towards. To me, that would be growing older well. It doesn't matter what it looks like others. It is that within these circumstances, within my destiny, I have chosen how to grow through it. And therefore, I've developed these potentialities I had in relation to it. It doesn't look like success, beauty, health. That's not what well looks like or what growth looks like. Growth looks like living your life, growing through all different circumstances into which you are thrown. And growing into your own personal wholeness, whatever that wholeness is for you. When you mentioned Mark's discussion about the mimicry, he was talking about those images and memories. You could reprogram a robot and they'd have a totally different perception of self and who they are. I guess in the model you were talking about with that wheel, the past being just one of those spokes, there's so many other pieces that shape how you're actually going to go about your life. The thing is, I think a lot of folks are quite attached to the images and memories of the past and can sometimes feel burdened by them in recreating them into the future. Well, this is what happened before, and this must be how this plays out in this workspace or in this relationship or whatever it may be. How do you work with folks to detach those things and reduce that burdened load of past memories? I think that the cliche of the baggage comes from exactly <laughs> this thing. It's 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 our human adult baggage, right? It's like a bunch of things we're carrying around. We think it's ours to carry. We don't know that we can just kind of drop it and move along. <laughs> and the thing, the reason why it's so difficult, why we're so attached to it, it's it's because it's sort of neurobiologically encoded, and so beauty of it is that over the last 15, 20 years, we have started to understand in much more detail the plasticity of nervous system. And whereas it's impossible to remove, which and we wouldn't want to remove what has been before, what you can do is you write on top of it. You write about new experiences, oddly enough. So when you look at a lot of trauma work, what it consists of is going back to the events and laying down some new neural pathways about what you would have needed at that point in order to come through it and be able to leave it as behind you as a past thing rather than as a still present thing. So, you know, there's research out there showing that traumatic memories are spread throughout our sensory system, whereas regular memories are kind of very neatly stored away so that, you know, it's kind of, it's a past. So yes, I almost got hit by a bus, you know, 15 years ago, but I don't feel things about it. It's just like, oh, it's a fact, right? Whereas traumatic memories, they're very different. They kind of sneak up on us. They're they're kind of always in the now. And we now see from, by looking, when you look at this, the slice of the pie of the wheel that has to do with, with the body, and when you look at techniques that have been more and more 
come into play, you notice that what they're doing, they are writing new neural pathways, which are going to be more active than the old ones, which will neatly going to store away these other pathways and allow us to start fresh from a different perspective. I always joke with people in my seminars how imagine, you know, people often say, well, this was my childhood. This is, these are the things that happened to me and I feel forever, you know, I'm impacted by it, but there's things I couldn't become because of this thing. And I always tell them, what if you could become the person um, you would be if you didn't go through that? If you had what you needed in grade two as a teenager, and they're always light up, it's like, well, that's impossible. And from neurological perspective, it's not. Mm. You can leave things behind and continue on uh, because of the this immense plasticity of, of our nervous system. And that, I think, is incredibly optimistic. The fact that we can leave the baggage behind and not behind, not to erase our troubles. I think of it as it's a little bit like wounds, right? Physical wounds. So if you have a physical wound that you pretend doesn't exist, what would happen over time is you would cover it with something, you would put extra clothing so it doesn't get hurt, and you would not do some things. You would play tennis. You wouldn't do anything that involves you physical activity because otherwise... You'd amend your life. You would amend your life. People do it all the time. They have an experience that, let's say, makes them uncomfortable interacting with people in position of power or something like this. And they slow, they shape their life around it. And they say, that's just my personality. I mean, I'm personality psychologist, but I have low opinion of personality <laughs> because fundamental was experience that we have had, that we adjusted to it, that worked for us. I found it so interesting how Maya talked about the tension created by identifying too strongly with one aspect of your personality or taking something you avoid and building your personality around it. So I wondered, how do people get out of that self-deception? And so what can happen is that as adults, we can literally take the shield off, take and heal the wound. And what happens then is that suddenly you realize that you can do many more things that you could have done before. It's like a whole new life. Now suddenly you have the use of this other function in you that you hadn't up to that point. And it opens up enormously powerful, opens up all these doors because suddenly we're like, wait, oh, I can do all these things now. I can talk to whoever I want. I can initiate contact. I can have these good conversations with people because I'm not afraid of being hurt or, or various other things. And where do people struggle the most in this process? Is it in first even acknowledging that there is a wound? Is it knowing how to heal it? It's not believing that it can be healed. Right. And I have to blame my own profession for it. <laughs> years, all people have been told is like, this is what you live with. Here's some painkillers or here's some medications. Not to say that that doesn't help for killing of the bear. Of course it does. But people have been told there is no meaningful way to heal this, to get to the root of this and make it go away. That it's fixed and you're going to be hanging onto that bag. You have to stand there and hold those heavy bags. It's fixed. And they're saying, look, we're just going to help you carry it better. And so I think, I think now is the time to really change the conversation. And for various reasons, I think psychologically, just think of the modern world. We're getting very confused. We're here's how to be happy. Here's how to hack your life. 
you're so to do this. You're so, it's like, what are we going for? Why? You know, why do we exist? Why we, should we do anything? We need to ask, start asking these questions to focus us. <laughs> and I don't mind the questions. I, I'm a very simple person. As a developmental psychologist, I know the purpose of life, right? To develop. <laughs> so I picked my thing. I picked my thing. It's hard for other people, right? So, you know, it's like asking what's the purpose of a peach tree or peach seed. It's just to become, right? So from my perspective, that's what I've kind of put my, I hang my hat on there. But for people, it's, it's very, very confusing. But it's the questions we really need to ask. Because otherwise, I don't know what we're hacking. We're hacking productivity. We're hacking this. We're hacking happiness. I always tell people, you can be happy all you want. You know, there's drugs for that. I'll put you in a room. I'll give you a pill. Or, and all of your life, you're going to be in that room. And you're going to be happy. And it's incredible. People say, no, no, but I don't want that. I want to live. Oh, so you want to live. So you do want a bit of pain and suffering for the growth. It basically shows that that's what we are going. We are. We don't want to be happy. <laughs> we want to live and we want to grow and we want to develop. And so, but these big questions, I think somehow got lost in million pieces of advice about how to better clear out your email or, you know, hack your productivity or not. It's all useful, but it needs to be centered on something meaningful. And then you introduce it. So is it that, Maya, all of these life hacks or the advice, like you said, the world is really complex with all of these different things pulling for our attention and promising something on the other side. Is it that they've harnessed our desire for meaning? Yes except that it's unspoken. So so basically a productivity hack has in it implied that if you become productive and finally have that inbox at zero, <laughs> you will feel fulfilled, <laughs> right? Or if you get the right habit and finally you're the body size you want to be, you will be fulfilled. And oddly enough, the only thing that will fulfill us if we actually move towards our potentiality, that's what's fulfilling. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of promising something and I think because we have had a dearth of options for meaning, we're just like, give me this, give me that, fine, I'll do this, I'll do that. I'll do everything because I need to hang my life on something. I need, and people get super confused. I, I get them all the time asking, so how about this book? How about that book? I've heard this podcast. I've heard that podcast. And it's so useful if you have a center and if you have a purpose, if you have some sense of meaning. But if you don't have it, it will just confuse you more. Because if you have a center, then you can take in these pieces and take what you need from each piece, not take them any as directive or dictionaries or encyclopedia on how to live your life. You can sort of pick and choose what fits you best because you know where you're starting from and what that directional pull is for you. You use each of them to propel you on your path rather than using them as your path. Beautifully said. So at Rotman, you are the director of the Self-Development Laboratory. This is an extremely popular initiative that attracts many MBA students to the school. For those who don't know about it, would you mind sharing what your vision for the Self-Development Laboratory is? So there was always in the, in the lab, there's a tension between the inner and the outer. And the outer is the mo more obvious to an MBA student. It's the things such as learning how to communicate better, learning how to have better conversations, how to become a better listener, 
Because all of these things are the kinds of things that you can put on a resume or that you can say in an interview, aha, I went to this lab and in the lab, they taught me how to have stronger presence and how to interview in a better way. So that's the obvious bit. The outer bit is about interpersonal relational skills, absolutely necessary for us to interact and do well in any kind of organization. And what I'm hoping happens is that as students come in, often focused on these interpersonal skills, they get to understand that, again, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> and there is, there's an inner part of self that needs developing, whether it is learning how to process emotion, learning how to understand one's activating points that get them to to get into extreme emotion that then gets their prefrontal cortex not to work well, whether it's understanding their own motivational system and that they're setting goals without any center or sense of priority. So these two, interpersonal, relational, which are very obvious to them and obvious often to the organizations who hire from our students, and to get them also as an introduction to this other way of thinking about the self and the world so that they can start early to work on this and if they can have this inner work. That's why we called it self-development lab rather than relational development lab. It's this understanding to develop these relationships, these basically interpersonal skills, there's something in the self that needs to move. That's the hope. You've likely seen thousands of students come through the lab now. Are there any stories that have really stuck with you of a journey of a student that moved tremendously quickly in a positive direction? And the other side of the coin is, are there any students that felt really confronted and you had an experience where they just couldn't click with it and couldn't accept to be in the driver's seat of their own self-development? It's a very good question. There's something about development that's entirely, it needs to be self-initiated. So we've kind of had a privilege to work as a co-curricular set of activities so that only the people who really, really wanted to be here would be here. And often, sometimes they are confronted by this need to look in themselves and they step away in my mind, I never, I would never judge somebody from stepping away from the inner world because it usually means that the outside conditions for that work are not there. Mm. They don't have enough support. They're too dysregulated. So the self-system is protecting. It's saying you can't look inside. Now is not the time because it can basically cause a breakdown. So when people are not ready, the best thing is to gather a little bit more energy and support things that they need. What I did have, very frequently have, is students in, let's say, the pre-program just before they start the MBA, and they hear about these things, and it's like, yeah, 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 but I need to do my marks and so on. And then either a year later or two years later or sometimes five years later, I hear from them saying, you know, the thing that you talked about, that technique, would you mind sharing it again? Because they are now at that point. So sometimes... People take it very seriously and transformation is very rapid. So I've seen, so on the positive side, I've seen students who thought that they had their naturally shy or not self-confident realize that really it's just a set of, you know, it's a little bit of that baggage that needed to be left behind and then learning a new set of skills. And then I have to say, time to watch somebody flourish as an adult in a way that they didn't think possible. It's very moving. 
And so we get a lot of that. Like we get a lot of people saying a lot of nice things. And I always tell them, you don't have to thank us. You're the one who's been doing the difficult work. Like I haven't been inside of your head doing all this difficult work you have, right? But the point is that they do the work and then they have this transformation, which is very moving. And, you know, it's very interesting. Sometimes it manifests in something obvious, like there'll be new kinds of relationships. And sometimes it's not like that. It's just they feel like they feel like their life now is open to potential rather than closed and shut down. I find there's something about it, even the hope, even when you know that, you know what, I could do the work. I'm choosing not to yet. But I, I know that I can open that door. It still provides hope. It's like a door that you know is there that you're choosing not to open. But you still know it's like, okay, I can go there if I want to. I can always open it. and then. There'll be this whole new world. And, Almost uh, like a lighthouse in the distance. Yes, that you can visit when you're ready. You teach across eight different programs also at the school. Do you find that the students react differently to the activities that you developed in the self-development lab? Can I say it's age-related? And not to make any broad generalizations, but I find the older the person is that I'm teaching, usually the more they will apply it very rapidly. So I think when we were in university and just post-university, we tend to think of professors as these people who are speaking kind of in front of us and just kind of giving us knowledge that you are supposed to store somewhere. And you just, but I think as you are in your profession and you are dealing with people all the time, I find that, I find that when I teach in the executive programs and often people who are in their 40s and they have teams and large teams and people who run organizations, they take these and it's like, oh, yes, I'm going to go tomorrow morning and I apply this. I mean, I'm teaching right now in a program and people tell me, it's like, I was up at 2 a.m. thinking about this thing because how do I apply? I want to apply it like tomorrow. So when we were young, I wonder if it's that sense of like, you know, I have a long life and sure, there's this knowledge over here. I can apply it at some point. Whereas <laughs> when you are at some point, you're like, now it's got to be now so i'm not going to say one is more useful than the other it's just that there's more vivid visceral sense like i gotta do this now i mean what am i waiting for (laughs) really do you think that the gap there is the lived experience and the development and expansion of identity in those maybe decade or two decades that folks have been in the workplace that makes them very ready and primed to visit the lighthouse I think it's understanding that, oh, this didn't work. This is what didn't work in my life. And this is why. And being having 15, 20 years of your career to be able to say, oh, yeah, that's right. I saw that over and over and over and over again. And I really want to change it now. Versus when you're young, you haven't really tried anything. So you're like, you know, I think I'll be fine. Basically, <laughs> I'll be fine. Cla- the classic words. The classic. And I'll get there. Let me just get the right job. And I think younger person is focused on the immediately on these outside things they're focused on the first job out of the MBA the first you know whatever the the first marriage or the first whatever is that they're having the first whereas you get somebody later on and they have a little bit of a past more past to reflect on they realize how much inner the landscape they're cultivating like an inner landscape inner garden they're not trying just to control their outside. With the older people, they're already impacting the world. They want the inner landscape from which they're impacting it to be 
flourishing, not just surviving, flourishing. So you've also been exploring the psychology of fiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what brought your interest to fiction? And can you share with us your suggested avenues for self-development through fiction? So I know, and I'm going to take the story back to genocide, which is not a nice thing to do. But so it's actually when I was studying, how is it that people get out of self-deception that I realized a couple of things about self-development. And one of them was that people usually in order to grow, they go through a period of dysregulation just prior to the growth. And this turns out to happen both for positive growth and for negative events like trauma. So there's a dysregulation that then precedes growth. And you see this in therapists' offices. Basically, there's a moment in which the self-system gets sort of emotionally dysregulated, and then we get to that new phase. And when you look at the ways in which we are often dysregulated from the outside, things happen to us that dysregulate us. We can sometimes dysregulate ourselves. So sometimes you're talking about things in a therapist's office. You dysregulate yourself by talking about difficult things. I found art to be one of the very rare dysregulators that is positive and that can be, it's gentle. So the studies that I've done for my PhD were all about how to use, you know, whether or not art can cause the kind of self-regulation that will potentially lead to growth. And what I found is that not just fiction, but also literature and music, all of them will produce fluctuations in personality if you measure it sort of before and after, such that people after they're exposed to it, for a moment, they let go of what they think that they are. And as you can imagine, that kind of moment of not being kind of attached to I am this person is that kind of space which provides, it's like a step. If you choose to move on to different ideas or different sense of a different way of looking at things, that's a fluctuation, that dysregulation is there. And to be quite honest, I think that's why art has survived for millennia, even though, you know, it doesn't feed us, it doesn't keep us warm. It is one, I think it is there to promote our growth. And cultivate us. And cultivate this dysregulation necessary for development. It's very, and what I love, it's it's gentle. I would love it if it were very accessible to everybody, right? So every, not everybody can afford a therapist, but everybody can, you know, go to a library, I hope, or hopefully walk into a museum, you know, on a Wednesday afternoon when they open it up to everybody and expose themselves that will provide them this step for growth. And it's entirely self-initiated. Nobody's pushing you to it. Nobody's pressuring you to do it. So yeah, my interest in art, in particular fiction, came from that. And there's three basically things that happen. I'll, I'll just speak about fiction now. Your cognitive empathy improves. You understand others better. Your mind becomes a little bit more open. So you think better. And you're open potentially to personality transformation, which is never a bad thing. Has there been a piece of art that's tremendously impacted you and you felt pushed you on a new trajectory in your life? I can share mine. Please do. Okay. I don't know if you remember the movie, The Curious Life of Benjamin Button. Yes. I was just so tremendously moved. The idea of having an awareness of your life in reverse and appreciating the things that you appreciated when you were young, when you're old, it just, something about the way that movie was delivered 
really spoke to me. And I know it's a Brad Pitt movie and it's like a big, you know, box oh, office movie. Existential. It really was. Yeah. And I sat in the Cineplex parking lot and just, I just cried my eyes out before I drove home. I can't pick favorite just because it happens so often to me. I have to say, I, mm. I spend a lot of time crying in parking lots <laughs> in movie theaters and at home while I'm reading books. It's a uniquely individual experience, right? And partially it depends, you know, some people say, well, you know, I feel nothing and that, that's perfectly fine too. For example, I'm more responsive to literature and music and film than I am to painting. So the keys to find your thing, the thing that will make you cry for 45 minutes in the parking lot is the thing. And it doesn't matter if nobody else likes it. It doesn't matter if, if people are snotty towards your, you know, if it is, Harry Potter for you or if it is whatever this thing is for you use it because we need to grow and we need help her we need a little help all the time awesome so for you is it a book is there anything I can't think about this okay I have I have I mean so many things so many but I do have to say okay I will bring out one thing not because it's the, the thing that moves me the most but it's because it moves me at all it's a very big surprise I'm not very good with painting and so so I'll go through to, to museums and I literally, I'll walk and I just feel nothing. Nothing. There will be painting and I feel nothing. So oh, it's kind of pretty. Another painting, I feel nothing. And I really feel deficient. You know, when you're kind of feeling deficient, <laughs> I know what it could feel like. And I remember flipping through some random thing. I can't remember where I was flipping through something. And I saw this painting of fish, raw fish and a bowl. And I don't actually even remember it's I think Vasquez or one of the Spanish painters but it just moved me and I thought oh there it is that's how it's supposed to feel I don't know what it was it was just so raw and it was just there was some and I literally it was some sort of a notebook that I mean it or a mag I can I literally cut it out and I framed it and I have it you know and every time I need to be reminded that I too can be moved by a painting I look at the fish <laughs> and the lemons and remind try to have it in me to be moved by visual art too. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hello, Sonia. <laughs> uh, how was Waffle's train ride to Montreal? She was surprisingly good. I was like sending photos of her in her little carrier at like my feet on the train. And all my friends were like, my dog could never. Sorry, she looked like she was in a handbag. It was a pet carrier, but yeah, a little handbag-esque. Very comfy, very cozy. It's fully made of mesh so she can see outside of it. Airflow is good. But pretty difficult to be confined to one little spot for five hours straight as a dog or a person either <laughs> so i want to say the conversation with maya was fantastic and she is consistently a student favorite but she really helps peel back the layers in understanding who you want to be as a leader she makes you question that Less about what you're trying to achieve and more about who you are. Who are you and how are you getting to know who that is and expressing it through your work? I think 
is such an important piece of connectivity that she does in her research and her work that is very distinct and different than the other things you learn. Okay, the first topic that I want to bring from Maya's talk is I turned 30 this year. What do you think is going to happen to me? Well, I guess it's nothing. (laughs) I stay exactly the same for the rest of my life. So I turned 30 in December and I can confirm that nothing happened. (laughs) Let's not talk about how much I'm winding the clock back to recall this feeling. I see change in both of your futures. That's what I'll say. Fear not. Ooh, you're like a magic eight ball. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the debrief is all Shakespearean. So during the podcast conversation, you shared how much impact the Benjamin Button movie has had (laughs) for you. I have a similar movie. I just, I don't know why, but I don't know if you both have watched this movie. I love the movie Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh. That is a gorgeous movie. I have not seen it. Please. Highly recommend. So it's actually based on a book, but it's essentially the, the main character in the movie is just daydreaming a lot about the life that he wants to live. Just like beautiful cinematography. He goes to Iceland. He's like, like everything happens and it's always just a daydream. Like you don't know when he's like sort of flipped back to reality. The summary of the movie and why it hits people so much is uh, it presents the greatest moral of the story and of his life specifically. Refuse to give in to others and become someone you are not. So like always aiming to push yourself out of the boundary. Up until the age of 30, according to the research. (laughs) no I'm kidding please keep going why was that so impactful for you I think the first time I watched it I think maybe I was in that phase where I was like like looking to do something different new and like that whole daydreaming aspect has like a beautiful soundtrack there are still days where I'll like just listen to the Walter Mitty soundtrack at the time I was like slowly getting into photography and there's like he's basically also another premise of the story Sonia he's like chasing a photographer for a specific film and so it was just a combination of all of those things and for sure the cinematography I just loved in that movie that and probably Matilda that's the second movie the original Matilda the original Matilda the amount of times I've seen that movie growing up with with a sister who is eight years younger than me um (laughs) I have it entirely memorized Elizabeth do you have a movie or a film that has impacted you Not quite a movie, but something that I realize has been like very moving for me has been the Chef's Table series. Oh, yes. Yeah, I just find those episodes and the stories of the different chefs incredibly inspirational. And that's another show where the cinematography is beautiful. And the way that they do the storytelling in that is just really finding like the roots of people's inspiration. And I love food. And I think it has such strong cultural ties. I think there's a lot of emotion and history in the way that we prepare and eat food. And just like seeing people's backstories for that. And I think people who work specifically in the service industry, it's a very grueling job. Mm. Um, It's hard being a chef. I don't know personally, but I've seen them work and the kitchen gets hot. (laughs) (laughs) The the saying is not the kitchen gets hot. (laughs) The saying is if you can't stand the heat in the kitchen, that's that's something like that. Okay, look, let's cut this part out. (laughs) 
and you can't heat the kitchen, and you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. That sounds right.